Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, we are in a series in Genesis, and we're talking the last couple of weeks about God's covenant. The first week we talked about covenant in chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 6. We talked about the promise that God provides in covenant. And then last week we looked at the cut of sacrifice or the sacrifice that secures that covenant. Well, today I want to continue with covenant and I want to talk about what it means to follow. Today we're looking at God's call to follow him in covenant. Covenant. And I want to begin by asking you the question Do you know what God has called you to? Do you know what God has called you to? So often we use these terms or these words that that are familiar, but we never take time to really clarify what it means. And I want to ask Do you know what it means to be called? By God. We're going to look at that today, but we're going to look at it in a narrative way, in a very practical way. And I didn't say this to the first service, but I feel like I probably ought to say it. This is not an easy message. I'll just start that way. Uh, It's heavy. And I, I fully anticipate that many of you will walk away today with burdens from the Lord from this message. And I want you to know that that shouldn't surprise you that the Spirit is working through this. But as the Spirit convicts you and places that burden upon you, just know that the Lord waits to respond. The Lord waits to speak with further clarity, encouragement, grace, and mercy, forgiveness, and cleansing in the midst of that. And so I begin that way. We're going to look at verses uh, chapter 16 through 19 today. We're going to kind of zoom out, if you will, from a, a, a high, maybe a, a you know a two or 3,000 foot perspective as the plane's landing, where you begin to be able to see details on the ground, but you get a bigger picture of the layout of the land. Well, I want us to look at that today because God doesn't call us into covenant just to, to kind of be this little thing that we understand, but we put to the side. It is the all-encompassing reality of the life of the one who follows Jesus by faith. And I want us to see that today. So let's go to chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading in verses 1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word 
today. Not an easy passage. As a matter of fact, these four chapters are not easy. As a matter of fact, the chapters that follow are not going to be any easier for us to walk through and deal with. But here's what they are. They are real. And if we'll follow the Lord through His teachings, He will help us in the difficulties of our life, understanding the way He has proven Himself faithful and true to His Word by the difficulties of other people's life. Sarah conceives an idea of how she can fulfill God's promise. She feels burdened for the promise that God has given to Abram and to her. And because of that, she wants to help. But in this idea, she tells Abraham what to do. You see, this was actually an acceptable means of obtaining children in the custom of their day. But hear me, it's never been an acceptable method for obtaining children in God's eyes. That's important here, friends. What we're seeing is though it was acceptable in the custom and the cultures of their day, that didn't make it acceptable before God. But what happened was Abram listened to her. So at her direction, he conceives a child with Hagar. And when Sarah saw that Hagar had conceived, she looked on her with contempt. And looking on her, she blamed Abraham for what he had done. Finally, Abram blamed Sarah, and he chose an absolutely terrible response to do nothing. You take care of this. He tried to wash his hands of it. Now, let me start here because I need to ask a question. And I just want y'all to know I may not live after I ask this question. So, if this is the last time I see you, I love you. I want you to know that. Is it just me, or does this whole situation sound eerily familiar? Let me explain what I'm asking. Men, how many times have you gotten in trouble for something you've done to your wife in her dream? You with me? It's okay. You do not have to nod your head in agreement. I understand how volatile that situation really is. I just want you to know you are still guilty in her mind. I don't even try to explain this in premarital counseling anymore. It's just something that defies words, right? Like you, you, you try to take a young man and help him understand, look, son, you're going to do things wrong and you're going to be guilty for them, but you never did them. But you are still guilty, right? That's somewhat of it, it, what's taking place here, except for it's not only in the mind. We live in a very different day, time, and culture, but seems that someone would have seen this coming There's so many familiar sounds and feelings in it, it hurts. But listen, the familiarity, whatever level of this, and and I only bring some lightness to it as levity. The, The familiarity is not with the current culture. And maybe this isn't the way our culture says we ought to do it. It says something differently. But the fact of the matter is the culture's offering you many ways to do an end run around God's plan for your life. The fact of the matter is simply this. It is absolutely common and familiar to us because it is the human condition of sin and its influence upon us. Actually, this account in verses 1 through 6 mirrors Genesis chapter 3 of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before God. Abraham is passive, and the Bible explicitly says that he listened to Sarah. You see, it's not saying that a man shouldn't listen to his wife, but a man should never listen to his wife over God. 
And that's what Abraham did. The point here is the promise God had made that Abraham put on the back burner and was willing to accept any other offers as options. And when that came, Sarah allowed her burden for what she wanted to see for Abraham and for them to overrun her patience. And she acted instead of obeying and waiting. We get so ready to trust God in the instant, but we really struggle to hold in those periods of waiting. You see, friends, Satan's tactics are not new, but they are increasingly effective. And we must be diligent to guard against sin's constant influence in our life, to substitute our plan for God's plan, or to grow lukewarm and passive towards God's promise in the seasons of waiting for him to fulfill that promise. Why do we begin here today? Because God has given Abraham a covenant promise and he has provided the sacrifice and shown Abram that he will fulfill this promise. He guarantees it on the very character of himself. He swears by his name because it is the most glorious name that has ever been. But the full measure of understanding has not yet been delivered and that's what we're beginning to see as God explains how the promise of his covenant will come about by his work. And God is revealing that while While he established the covenant by his character and nature, he calls his people into that covenant to believe and to trust, to follow his will by his way and his working. Friends, I want you to walk away with this today. God calls people to follow him by faith in his salvation covenant and to declare the glorious praise of his name. There's not a person in the room that God's not calling to this very purpose today. Every one of us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know the call of God upon your life. And there will be moments and instances within which you see the ways you have failed to follow and obey God. And God is calling you today to trust in him, to turn in repentance, receive forgiveness and cleansing of your sin, and to walk in obedience by faith. Some of you are here today and you've never come to a point in your life where you've repented of your sins, you've turned from yourself to follow Jesus. And I want you to know today, God is extending that invitation by his call for you to hear the words of his hope in his word and to say yes to him today. That's our prayer for you. You see, understanding God's covenant God's salvation is essential because it's the foundation of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We've made salvation so much less than what the scriptures really teach it to be. We've reduced it to things like a simple decision of the will. If you just emote or if you, excuse me, not emote, if you just act and exert your will, then you can make a decision to follow Jesus. And that's what salvation is. But that is not what salvation is according to the scriptures. If you get stirred up in your emotions, and you reach a point of true emotional uh, uh, encounter with God, that is a point of salvation. And you can know you're saved because of that. But friends, biblically, that is not salvation. If you reach a height of intellect or understanding about the things of the Bible, then you can simply uh, 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 conclude by your intellect what it means to follow Jesus. But biblically, that is not what it means to follow Jesus. 
Becoming a Christian is never one or two or less than all three of these things. It is always all of them comprehensively. It is the intellect of the mind. It is the affections of the heart. And it is the volition of the will acting as one being together, consumed with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, biblical salvation is death to life. Jesus died for us to give his life to us. Therefore, when we believe and receive his gift of salvation by faith, we die to self in order to live for him. This is biblical salvation. And this is what we're beginning to dive more deeply into as we study God's covenant and his call to follow. Verses 7 through 16, an angel visits Hagar to tell her that the Lord cares for her. Why is this important? Well, Hagar is one of the first uh, cases of abuse that we see in the scripture. We love to talk about abuse in this day and time, and we need to address it at every turn. And the scriptures are not silent on how it is that God perceives nor addresses abuse. Hagar had absolutely no control over her situation. She served Sarah with her whole life. And the very person that her life served told her to go do this. She went and did this, and then she got ostracized for doing exactly what she was told. And God comes to her and he makes a promise to her that he sees her and that he knows her situation. Because she gives birth to a son and Abram names the son Ishmael. He's 86 years old. What does that tell us? It tells us that's 14 years before God will actually fulfill the promise of Isaac, their son. Hagar in her life reminds us that, friends, no one is beyond the Lord's sight That God sees and cares for the abused and he responds to them when they call to him. Well, when we go into chapter 17, look at verses 1 through 8. We begin to move now into some of the uh, key aspects of God's covenant as he lays them out to Abraham. When Abram was 90 years old, so four years later, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And look at verse 8. Here's where that first key aspect is set forth for us. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Genesis 17 begins with the Lord calling Abraham four years after Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. And God calls Abraham to holiness, to covenant faithfulness. He says, I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, Abraham and God both knew Abraham didn't have the capacity within himself to do that. But God wasn't asking what he could do. God was telling and commanding him what he wanted to do in his life. 
He reminds him of his promise and he changes his name to mark him. And he expands his understanding of all that this covenant means by calling him to follow him and establishing the first of three key aspects of God's covenant. I will be their God. That's why the first commandment is what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Why? Because the covenant of God's salvation begins with this. I will be their God. Not one of, not one among many. Their God. And he expands his understanding. You see, he establishes this first key aspect of his covenant by commanding him to walk blamelessly before him. Why? Because God is God Almighty. He is worthy of our faith. He is worthy of our trust. And so he commands faithfulness to his covenant by his people. Next, look at verse 9 in chapter 17. In 9 through 14, he tells us that he's going to give a sign to Abraham. He gives the sign of circumcision to Abraham and his people in order to identify them as God's people. God wants the people to have a way to be identified as his, but not only as his, to also demonstrate commitment to one another. You say, why is this so important? Because, friends, Christian community is not just a concept that got created in the last generation. Community with God is established in his covenant. And the sign that he gives is not just about setting them aside as God's people, but identifying them among one another as the people of God. There is a communal, a corporate, a congregational identity with which God's people take on when they believe and follow his covenant. And God says this in verse 13 of chapter 17, what is done in the flesh will represent what is eternal in the heavenlies. You see, it doesn't mean that what takes place in the flesh is of ultimate priority, but it represents, it points to that which is ultimate. And so he establishes the second key aspect of the covenant to distinguish his people as his. Key aspect number one, I will be your God. Key aspect number two, you will be my people. Abraham is overwhelmed by the promise Verses 15 to 27. But he's concerned for Ishmael. This is his son. His son who is now four years old. And he's lived with the tension between the reality of Ishmael and Sarah's obvious discontent and disconcertedness with his presence. God assures Abraham that he'll take care of Ishmael. But he says, I will not fulfill my promise through Ishmael. I will fulfill my promise in my way. And so Abram obeys immediately circumcised Ishmael and his whole household to set them apart to God as God commands. When we come to Genesis chapter 18, it begins, three men visit Abraham. And Abraham recognizes them as coming from the Lord. And they tell Abraham, while Sarah is fixing a meal for them, they tell Abraham that Sarah will have a baby. In a year, they will return and she will have a baby at that time. And and in the telling of that, Sarah hears it and she laughs and asks her own question. Now, I want you to see something here because when Abram first heard of what was going to happen he too chuckled but he also asked a question but there are different kinds of laugh right like I'm so glad you're here today and I don't know exactly what you just said to me felt like a 
slam, but it sounded like a compliment, right? I mean, we understand that there are different things. And what the text is teaching us here is that they responded differently. Abraham accepted from God, but because of his insecurity about how God was going to fulfill it, he didn't take the time to convince his wife. And Sarah hadn't been brought along And so she laughed and she asked a question that actually demonstrated her own doubt. You see, her question was not like Abraham's, not because she's less perfect than him. This is not a he versus she, man versus woman, or husband versus wife. But rather, she simply demonstrates her own lack of belief in God's promise. And when the Lord asks, why did she question? Why did she laugh? She lied. She was afraid. And so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. They said, yes, you did. It never helps, friends, when we try to hide from the Lord. He knows our fears. He knows our unbelief. And he wants us to be honest with him, honest before him as an act of faith. Yes, he already knows. Our honesty before him is not to inform him. It's to inform us. It's to get honest and bare before God. So the men leave and Abram escorts them out. And as they're leaving, the Lord reveals to Abraham his intent to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And immediately Abram remembers who's living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Go back a few chapters. His nephew Lot divided from him. And Lot looked out and selfishly chose the greener grass on the other side. And that led him right into the heart of sinful wickedness. In Sodom and Gomorrah. And so when Abram heard this, he immediately began to intercede for Lot and for his family. He said, uh, Lord, if there are 50 righteous people, will you destroy them with the wicked? And God said, no, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Abram goes, beg me just one more prayer if there are 40. And he begins to lower that number. And he gets all the way to the point where he says, if there are 10. And God says, no, if there are 10, I will spare them. And Abram goes, that's enough. This reminds me of Watchman Nee's quote that I shared a couple of weeks ago on the relationship between intercessory prayer and the Lord's will. That the Lord is always apprehending someone or some people, he says, to be the expression of his will. If many will rise up to do his work, he will do many things because of their prayers. Listen, friends, it is the will of God being governed by the prayers of people. The prayers of his people. Abram is interceding for Lot and he demonstrates God's will and God's desire to save. Abram didn't intercede and God did what Abram said because Abram was who he was. But rather Abram prayed because of who God was. He believed he had the power to do what he had promised to do. And Abram was making his request known in obedience to God by faith in what he could do. And God said, I'll do it. God's looking for his people who will join him in his work to save and to redeem. That's what we're seeing here with Abram. We come to chapter 19. And all of a sudden we fast forward into Sodom and Gomorrah. Two angels show up at Lot's home and they warn him of the impending doom. And when the men of the city who are great in wickedness hear of of the two men's arrival, they begin to beat on the door and try to break the door down to demand that the two men who are there come out and satisfy their illicit pleasures. But Lot, in a moment of extremely poor decision, one that most commentators have absolutely no explanation for, it's just a moment of absolute 
futility, stupidity, and everything else exposes his daughters to great evil. But the wickedness and its demand says we must have our own pleasure, and they do not accept it. And it tells us that their incessant appetite for sin, when the angels grab Lot and pull him back into their house and slam the door, the men weary themselves to the bone by the demand of sin driving their life. That's the picture that the author paints for us here. Slave is a wearying, damning master, friends. It is always and only destructive to our lives. They tell Lot that the city will be destroyed and to get out and to get out now. Lot tells his family, but a very interesting thing occurs. They don't believe him. You see, he's got daughters there now who have married men in the city. And they've got children. And they don't believe them. Men, husbands, dads. This ought to caution us strongly. We cannot live lukewarm lives towards God. And the way we live our life or the way we lead our families, even the way we influence people around us, and expect that when crises or hard times arise, they'll automatically follow us in what seems such an extreme measure because it's so foreign to what's been done all along the way. Your influence will always be established by the regular, consistent pattern that you provide in following the Lord at all times. That's why Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, when you rise in the morning and when you get ready to go to bed at night, when you sit at the table and when you walk along the way, tell your children about the goodness of God, how it's His hand that this food hit the table. How it's from His hand that the good things in your life have come. And how it is by His hand that you will be sustained. Why? Because when it is the regular pattern of your life, it will become common and second nature to look to Jesus and to follow His word for you. Lot hesitated though. And he didn't want to leave. Why? Because his family would not go with him. They didn't believe him. So at dawn, the angels demanded they get out. And literally, the scripture says, they tugged them out of the house to get them out of the city. Lot, his wife, and his two daughters escaped. Already, the family is divided over the sinfulness of Lot. And the Lord rains down sulfur and fire and destroys all of Sodom and Gomorrah and its inhabitants. Verses 23 and 24 tell us. As they flee, the Bible says that Lot's wife looks back in disobedience to what God has told him. And she turns to a pillar of salt. Interestingly enough though, not many hours later, Abram is waking up over across the way. And he walks out of his tent looks across the horizon and sees the billowing smoke of the burning city and all of its inhabitants in it. Reminds me of Proverbs 29, 16 that says, when the wicked increase, transgression increases and in a way you cannot control. But the righteous will look upon their downfall. Friend, I want you to see at the end of chapter 19 a most hopeful phrase that concludes, listen to this, God Remembered. You see that? 
Look at verse 29. God, remember. This verse reminds us of the hopefulness that we have in God. He does use his people because, hear me, God remembered Abram's prayer and saved Lot. Did you hear that? God remembered Abraham's prayer and Lot was saved because of it. These verses make us ask, man, they're mind-boggling. What happened to Lot? Such a stark contrast is drawn here between what it means to follow the Lord and what it means to be passive and lukewarm and cold towards the things of God. You see, Lot's passivity had reached its end. He found himself in an endless cesspool of wickedness that was spiraling out of control and he had no control over it. He didn't even have an argument to guard himself from it. He held a familiarity with the Lord but did not make the Lord a priority in his life. And that lack of priority left his family vulnerable and exposed when crises and hard times arose. And since his passivity led him to the place of sin and wickedness, when his family became vulnerable and exposed, they became consumed by that which surrounded them in the culture that they were immersed in. You see, let me paint a more accurate picture. Lot and his family were moral people. But they were not wise and discerning in the ways of godliness. Lot and his family were good people. But they weren't interested in being bothered by prioritizing godliness as a way of life. And as long as everything was okay, they were fine. But when God's judgment fell, they just didn't buy it. They didn't believe it was coming even when they had knowledge no one else had. They couldn't believe in it. Because they had never seen it before. They'd never been trained to believe the Lord. Listen, Lot failed to lead his family to walk in obedience by faith to the Lord. So when hard times struck, they needed proof to be convinced instead of faith to follow. They chose what was familiar, the world's ways that were all around them. You see, they had been immersed in the values of the world and just absorbed them because there were no other values being planted within them. The ideas that they espoused came from everyone around them instead of the home from which they were living. And the way they thought about things and the practices that shaped their life became the cause of what it was that destroyed their life. When they became exposed and vulnerable, they were consumed by what they had consumed their life with. And I say to us today, beware of the sinful acceptableness of passivity in your life, especially men as husbands and fathers who are given charge by God with the responsibility to lead our families and to lead our homes. For the gestation period may be long, but when it comes, it will always birth unbelief. When it's most needed. The way that you lead your wife. The way that you raise your children. The way that you influence your friends. Will be the way that they run when trouble comes. No matter how hard you work to warn them otherwise. You see passivity's morality is most deceiving. By its acceptable hollow shell under which it cloaks its unbelief. It is comforting with a form of godliness. But as Paul says to Timothy, that appearance of godliness knows nothing of God's true power. And therefore it will not trust. 
Trusting in the Lord and growing in godliness, leading your family to follow Jesus will never be without intentionality and the regular practice of following him. There is no sermon, there is no quick fix or pleading that will convince a family to run to God when the burning sulfur falls, when all they've known is to have nothing to do with him before. What you allow to be placed on the back burner of priority now will be too late to run to when you recognize it. Because they'll be consumed by passivity's lack of intentionality and priority. Listen, friends, if I've learned anything in my life, it's this. There may be a measure of victory that I find in this life over sin in me. But the sin that I have committed against others, the sin that I have cast upon others, the sin that I have committed in the offense, in the spoken words, in the infection that I have given to others, I cannot and will not ever control how it affects them. That's true of people around me. That's true of friends. That's true of family. It's most true, I'm learning, of my children. When they grow up to become adults, they're their own people. And if there's been any way in which I have failed to fully train them in the ways of the Lord, I can't control nor can I take that back. And as a parent, that burdens my heart. Because no matter how small or inconsequential it may seem, Satan will throw fuel on that fire and he will burn it to every extent that he can find in that. I'm not preaching today to bring hopelessness to you. I'm preaching to warn you. Jesus is not worthy of your light-hearted lukewarmness. Jesus is not worthy of when it's convenient for you. Jesus is not worthy of the things that are acceptable by you and to dismiss the things that are okay to be discarded from you. He is God Almighty. He calls us to walk blamelessly before Him because He and He alone is worthy. Living in God's covenant by looking to Jesus daily is the only way you will run to Him at all times. God's peop- or God calls people to follow Him by faith in His salvation covenant and declare the glorious praise of His name. I want to offer to you today, very quickly, five distinctives of following God by His covenant. I want you to understand what it means to walk with Him in His covenant and what we understand as salvation in Jesus Christ. First of all, God is the covenant maker with man. He is the covenant defender against sin. He is the covenant keeper that is faithful to his word. He gives us the first two of three aspects of the covenant. I will be their God. They will be my people. Listen, when God makes us new in Jesus Christ, everything about us that is most true of us is radically different. That's what transformation is all about. We become a different person. We follow Jesus because God establishes, defends, and fulfills His covenant by His covenant will. He establishes it by the righteousness of His character with Abraham and His descendants. And the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, that those of who are by faith in Jesus Christ are the heirs and the descendants of Abraham. It's not just biological or genetic. It's spiritual. It's by faith. 
As God establishes his covenant, so he determines who it is that will enter and enjoy it. And this is the second distinctive of his covenant. God calls people to believe and to walk by faith and obedience to him. You see, God's covenant is the revelation of his glory. It's not a trinket for people to do with as we will. God doesn't want you to put it on the mantle so that you can talk about it when guest comes over. God wants to blaze it on your heart so you can be burning with the love and the grace and the truth of Christ, marked by him. God calls people to live by faith and to walk in obedience to him, not because it makes sense to us. You hear that? But because he is worthy of our trust. And God's worthiness is the defining rationale for why he calls people to trust him. He is Abel, listen, when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, this is exactly what he is establishing. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What does that do? It identifies us with God. I will be their God. Teaching them to observe, to obey all of these things by which I have commanded you. You will be my people. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, Jesus says, I conquered Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave. I am worthy. I am able Disobedience, friends, always destroys what we continue, or when destroys us when we continue to walk in it. But when God calls to live in faithfulness to Him, it's not because it is sourced out of or from our ability, but rather by our faith in Him, His power, His strength, His might, and glory within us. The third distinctive is that God seals His people as His own by the Holy Spirit. Whereas he gives Abraham the sign of circumcision to mark them as his people. This is a sign to the people that they are God's. He also marks as God's people among all nations. In other words, it is the missional impulse of God's heart. God wants people to know who he is. And his means of accomplishing his mission on the earth is telling his people to go to the nations to tell them who he is. And he marks us in this way by the seal of the Holy Spirit. When we put our faith in Jesus, his Holy Spirit is put within us. And he he circumcises the heart by Christ to enable us to love him in the way that he has commanded us to. With our whole mind, soul, body, and strength. And he circumcises our heart and he seals us as the guarantee of our inheritance in him. And when we walk through the waters of baptism, it is a public identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by which the Holy Spirit marks us as God's and as God's alone. We are his people because he's put his spirit within us. The way we live and the way we walk distinct to Jesus by the Holy Spirit forms the testimony to all people of the glory and the praise of Jesus' name that says this, I'm not perfect, but He is worthy. By His grace, I'm with Him. The fourth distinctive, God watches over His people, but He judges sin and wickedness. Look at this verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Friends, let me put this concept in your mind to walk away with today. You're either living for the smile of God, or you're living with God's face standing against you. 
and sin and wickedness. That's why at the end of every service, when you hear the blessing pronounced over you, may God bless you and keep you. May God lift up his countenance upon you. These are all Levitical blessings that God has bestowed upon his people to say the eyes of the Lord are on us. He hears us. He sees us. He knows. But friends, if you want nothing to do with God, understand this. You live with his face against you. Abraham and Sarah were far from perfect, but God didn't call them to faithfulness because of their own perfection, because of his righteousness. But Lot reaped the reward of his passivity. He just didn't think God was that big of a deal in the day in and day out of his life. And it heaped curses on his head. And not only on his, but his family's head for many generations. You see, God's blessing comes through us through repentance and forgiveness. But sin's misery and suffering arrives quietly. But begins to sting initially and continually. And as we grow more passive just trying to get away from it, that lukewarmness or casualty towards God only sets it in with greater sting and burn. Friends, God will not tolerate sin and wickedness forever. But He will ensure that His people do not succumb to sin's final blow. You're either living under the smile of God or you're suffering and languishing under the guilt, the shame, and condemnation and death of your sin. And if you know you are there today, you don't have to stay there today. God calls you out. Number five, God leads his people to declare the glorious praise of his name on earth. Repeatedly, God uses Abraham to accomplish his will and to declare his glory in the world. He used Abram's prayer to unleash his will in the world, both for Ishmael and for Lot, just in these chapters. Another way we say it here is is to live in God's covenant means that we become covenant agents or ambassadors. To be saved is to be sent. That's what we mean by that. That when God saves us, he sends us to the world to declare his glorious worth to all people. And God will accomplish his will on earth and he has willed that he will do it through his people. He leads all people to serve his mission in the world to multiply the glory of his name. And that's why he's calling us today, friends. He calls people by faith to follow him in his salvation covenant and declare the glorious praise of his name. One final application and I'll be done. Parents, your first mission field is your home. You hear me say this very often, but I pray that the children that are born into this congregation will never know a day without the love and the grace of God. And as soon as you get here, If you've already got kids, from that day forward, they would never know another day. If you don't have kids, I pray the same thing for you. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have kids, whatever. But I'm speaking specifically to parents now. I want you to be warned. How you live will either bless or curse your children for the name of Christ or for the culture that's consuming them. What are you training them to believe? Who are you training them to follow? Consider that today and act accordingly to turn to the Lord. I say to you today, is your child not following Jesus in the way that you believe they should or how they should? Listen, do not stop. Do not create your own plan. Keep interceding to the Lord. Keep interceding and asking God. The prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. God hears those prayers. He will act. Were you saved later in life? 
and you didn't have the opportunity to influence your children when they were younger, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. It's not too late for God. God can turn in an instant what we can't accomplish in a lifetime. Trust Him. Go to Him. Let's pray.